I usually begin by saying this is Rumble, but today, <laughs> this is Rumble Day, my friends. This is Michael Moore, and Rumble Day today means it is Impeachment Day, Part Two. It's like Police Academy too, except better. This is this is Impeachment Day, Wednesday, January the thirteenth. One week, one week after the President of the United States incites a riot and calls upon tens of thousands of semi-armed supporters of his to storm down Pennsylvania Avenue to our United States Capitol and try to take it over, try the coup. And within one week, and by the time you listen to this, he may already be impeached, but he is going to be impeached today. What a great lesson for all future presidents to learn. If you do something like this, you are impeached within seven days. And now, now we have the great news, unbelievable news, actually, that Mitch McConnell has told people that he believes that Trump did commit an impeachable offense and that he may have to go. Mitch McConnell. Already Republicans are lining up to vote for impeachment today in the House. Liz Cheney, Dick Cheney's daughter. How many deaths is Dick Cheney responsible for? <sighs> That's for another show. <clears throat> but Liz Cheney and and uh, Peter Meyer, the new congressman from Michigan, uh, there are so many, just as I started recording this, they're just like one after another Republicans were announcing that they were going to vote for impeachment today. Wow. And now the Senate, there's already a half a dozen senators that have indicated their desire that Trump has got to go. But now Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, does that mean that they may call the Senate back in? this week and convict him before inauguration day the evidence we've all seen the evidence there's no discovery needed here wow is that possible well today is possible the impeachment that will happen today if it hasn't already happened by the time you hear this again i just i, I was talking to basil here before we started our great executive producer of this uh, podcast. And he was saying, hey, wait a minute. Shouldn't we be on an Amtrak? I mean, we it can't be an impeachment unless we're there. And I said, and remember, I was there. I was there on the floor of the House for Clinton's impeachment. The very first day of the hearings there with Ken Starr, I sat on the dais behind John Conyers. He had me sit there like I was a staff member. <laughs> so I was there for Clinton's impeachment. Basil and I, my sister, we were there for Trump's first impeachment. The only other impeachment in our history was, was Andrew Johnson back in 1867 or 68. We were not alive for that. Although that was the year our grandfather was born. So I don't know if that counts, but so we missed we missed the great impeachments of the uh, 
of the 19th century, but but I can say that I have been at every impeachment, every presidential impeachment in the 20th century and in the 21st century. <laughs> I don't know if I can put that on my CV, but boy, that just feels good. But now, but except we're not going to, we're not there today. COVID, damn you. Actually, I don't know if there are a lot of anybody in there today. They probably got the place so buttoned down after what happened last week. But thank God. Thank you. Thank you, Democratic leadership. Thank you for not wimping out. Thank you for maybe thinking about being new Democrats as we enter this new era, the non-wimp Democrat, Democratic Party era. We need you. We need this so badly. We need the fight in you, the good fight, not violent, peaceful, smart, using our brains, not using American flags to try to beat a cop to death like they did last week. Wow. It's, um, it's really something. It's really, really something, isn't it? And just the, you know, every day for these last seven days, I've been asking, where is the press conference? that federal law enforcement would be having if there was any other incident, any terrorism, any school shooting or whatever, there's a big gaggle of microphones and a gaggle of press and a gaggle of people going up to the microphone, the sheriff, the police chief, the mayor, the governor, all talking about this horrible incident that just happened. And not one of them, no microphone in all these days since this incident, like, where have they been? And I'll tell you where they've been. They've been trying to get their story together because they knew this was going to happen. Many of them decided to turn their heads the other way, not be involved, not do anything about it. Now they've learned that a number of their own members, actual on-duty cops in plain clothes participating in the riot, on-duty sheriffs, they've identified in the photos at least two NYPD who drove down there to be part of the riot, two Seattle police officers. There's a sheriff from another state. There's a police chief. There may be FBI. There may be national security. And there's a ton of military that were there last Wednesday participating in it, participating in the violence, trying to be part of a coup to overthrow our United States Congress, to try and stop the votes from being counted so that the loser could become the winner. And we're going to find this out, my friends. I mean, this is, I don't, I have to just, I'm not making this up on that part. I don't believe in any conspiracy theories here. It's just, I've lived long enough in this country and I know the truth. And the truth is, there's going to be a ton of military and ex-military that were involved in that last week. And um, we're going we're gonna to learn all this. But they finally had a lame-ass press conference yesterday on Tuesday here. And and it wasn't a big gaggle of people. The head of the FBI didn't come out. The attorney general, the acting one, he didn't come out. They sent these, they sent these two lugs out to talk to a press that was not allowed in the building. The press had to call in. They only allowed like four questions. <clears throat> four press got to talk. Somebody from NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox, CNN. And that's it. No New York Times, none of that. 
No, just the the TV press. They got to ask a question, and then their phone line was cut off. And the answers that these two gave, it was a representative from the FBI and, and the a United States District Attorney from the District of Columbia. Um, so, and because that's that is a that's a district of federal office, so it's controlled by Trump. He had to be a, been appointed by Trump. I'm I'm, I'm assuming. Um, they did their best to try and bullshit their way through the press conference without ever saying anything. And it was disgusting and it was pathetic. And we learned nothing um, other than that we're still in a lot of trouble. They wouldn't, they didn't want to address the, the, the cable that they got from Norfolk, Virginia, from the FBI office there last week, telling them that there was going, a war was being planned on the United States Capitol. Wow. So, as far as I'm concerned, the press conference still hasn't been held. We are not being told the truth. The press is not being allowed to ask questions. That's because they're trying to cover this up. It's embarrassing to them. They blew it again, just like they did with 9-11. Fucking idiots. So fucking stupid. Not working with each other. Not listening to their own field offices. And not wanting to admit how many white supremacists and racists are part of their law enforcement divisions. And because of that, that's why they let they let the angry white people who look just like them and feel just like them right through the doors. And the ones, the few Capitol Police that fought back, a lot of a lot who were black and brown, who got their heads smashed in. Um, it was hard to get through those doors. But the others, Capitol Police, they were like right this way. Oh, you want to know where Chuck Schumer's office is? Oh, right over here. Nancy Pelosi, just down that hall and then turn right. When this all comes out, my friends, when you hear us say defund the police, you understand we don't mean defund the police like we don't need any police and let's take all the money away. We talk about the current police, what we call police, the racists that run these police departments that occupy these police departments that are not there to protect you and me unless we have nice white skin and a good bank account and live in a nice neighborhood. Then then we'll be protected. But everybody else is going to be is going to be harassed, is going to be victims of violence from these agencies. And then when something like this happens, when they help, some of them help to participate and plan it, we will not learn the truth until somebody is appointed to dig in and get the truth. And please don't give me Robert Mueller again or any of this bullshit. I want a real, I want the real Sherlock Holmes to tell us exactly what happened. And when we hear it, it ain't going to be pretty, but we're going to fix it. And we're going to remove a lot of these so-called law enforcement people, and then we're going to keep an eye on them because they're going to join those militia groups and those right-wing extremists. And we're going to talk about that here today on Rumble because I have with me a very special individual who wrote the report back back um, 12 years ago in 2009. He worked at the Department of Homeland Security, and he wrote the report to warn the American public about the rise of right-wing extremism. And for writing the report, they were for, they fired him, his staff. Uh, right-wing media just came down on it so hard, Obama backed down. And then they closed down the domestic terrorism 
um, uh, office there that he was working in, in the Homeland Security Department, setting up, setting up some 12 years ago, the eventual potential overthrow of our government that took place last Wednesday. He'll be with us um, here in just a, a few minutes. But I know, listen, we're all on pins and needles here because armed attack number two, coup two, is being planned right now by these extremist uh, groups. And there will be violence between now and then unless, unless it's prevented, unless it's stopped. And please, Democrats, Joe Biden, do not run and hide. That inauguration has to pl take place outdoors on the steps of our Capitol. You must not let them win. Yes, take every single precaution necessary. But if they see if they can get away with this, they're going to believe they can get away with anything. And you're, Mr. Biden, your entire four years is going to be not making policy happen to make a better country. It's going to be with the distraction of, of violent episode after violent episode when we need to be getting rid of COVID, when we need to be bringing people back to work, when we need to be giving people money so that they, they don't go broke. All the issues we need to do with healthcare, immigration, the DACA kids, everybody, all those things that you say you want to do and that we're going to do and then they don't get done because you're trying to deal with the fact that we have terrorists amongst us and they're going to try to slow down and stop everything you're going to do or not, or you're going to stop them. Everybody who's planning right now to come to DC next week. And for those tens of thousands of you who stayed there in and around the area, because you're planning phase two of this assault. I mean, they say that they're going to have 15,000 National Guard troops there in D.C. Not enough. A lot of these groups are going to attack state capitals. NBC had a report on tonight showing the Michigan State Police has increased. They said they've increased their presence at the Michigan State Capitol, the one that the armed militias took over back in the spring. And then they showed a shot of five Michigan State cops on bicycles, dri driving their, riding their bicycles around the state capitol grounds. My friends, this isn't going to do it. You need a full force, a full force with, with all the armaments that you need to stop them and stop them cold. See, they think liberals, lefties, Democrats, whatever, a bunch of wimps. Most of us aren't gun owners. We're not violent people. So they, they thought they could do this, and they did. They stopped the United States government from operating for a good seven hours there last Wednesday. They shut us right down. And don't you think that they aren't planning to do that again? And not just there, but in state capitals across the country. Need to, You, those of you who are listening to this today on impeachment day, need to be asking your representatives in your state capitals what is being done to protect us and our state capitals in the coming week or two. If you don't stop them now, you're going to be dealing with this for the next four years. They must be stopped. They must be stopped cold. 
No wimping around here, friends. No kumbaya. They are hell-bent on violently, violently making sure that the government cannot function. We know why they brought those zip ties, those handcuffs. They were planning to cart away members of Congress. They had built a gallows with with nooses. Did you see the, the picture of this? On the grounds of the Capitol. That's their fantasy. They talk about not just killing Nancy Pelosi, but they want to hang Mike Pence because he wouldn't stop the counting of the votes. And, and Trump, angry at him, tells the crowd this, that Pence is not a good boy. And up Pennsylvania Avenue they went to as they were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Do you understand? I'm talking to all of you now. Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, whatever. If this isn't stopped right now, we're doomed for some time. Before I bring our guest on, just two seconds here, I just want to <laughs> present some good news, some happy news. Today, a wire came across in the AP about mid-afternoon that the law enforcement or I don't know if it was the attorney general or whatever, but they are going to prosecute the ex-governor of Michigan, Rick Snyder, the person responsible for the poisoning of Flint, Michigan. He is going to face justice. Now, I haven't seen any further stories since we started re recording here, but, but this is, I mean, years, years, those of us from Flint who live in Flint now or like me, I, I live north of Flint, but we, all of us from there, we have fought for this and demanded this, that he be arrested. He came in when he got into office and he came in and he had the mayor of Flint removed and the city council. And he appointed his own lackeys to run the city. The city was broke. And so the duly elected people, that the people of Flint wanted running the city were removed. He installs his lackeys, his pro-business Republican lackeys, to run the city. And he tells them, cut cut the budget, cut, cut, cut services, too much money being spent on Flint, majority black city, one of the poorest cities in the country. And his lackey that's running the show says, oh, I got a great idea. Um, you know, the, the, the drinking water or the water the people drinking in Flint comes from Lake Huron, which is 70 miles away. It's got to be piped in. The cost of that, we could save money by cutting them off from the Lake Huron water and have them drink from the Flint River, the dirty, filthy Flint River. Yeah, we'll put it through some processing, you know, filtering this and that, whatever. And he says, how much money will we save? And they, I forgot what the number was. It was some ridiculously low number. And he said, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's cut them off from the good water. And so the people of Flint had to start drinking from the Flint River. And within days, people's hair is falling out, their skin's turning colors. And worse, the lead in it, the lead in the river water, went into the bodies of children. Um, if you're six or under and you ingest lead, uh, first of all, you can never get it out of your body. 
the harm and the damage it does, it does is for life. And mostly what it does, it's, it provides permanent brain damage. Permanent brain damage. They figure at least 10,000 kids in Flint had permanent brain damage as a result of the governor's decision to poison the city by having them drink the water. And, and he knew he could get away with it because they're poor and they're black. And who's going to say anything? And nobody did say anything. And then once he, the governor was told a year into this, hey, this water's testing really bad. And then he tried to cover it up. And they did for some time until certain people decided to do something about it and to inform the public. Today, the Associated Press announced that he would be facing charges. That it was the only good news of the day. That and the fact that in the coming hours, Donald Trump would be facing his second impeachment. So you see, it's not all bad. Sometimes the system works. Sometimes we have to make noise to make it work. Let's bring on my guest here for today. As I've said, we knew and our government knew that this day would come. This day that we're in right now, this week that we're in right now, all of us um, living on pins and needles to some extent, not really knowing um, what's ahead here. Back in April of 2009, this would be about three months after President Obama was inaugurated for the first time. The Department of Homeland Security issued a threat assessment, and it was entitled, and I'm quoting, right-wing extremism, current economic and political climate fueling resurgence in radicalization and recruitment. That was the title of the report. Now, if you remember back then, now we're talking early 09, you know, we just had the crash of 08. So back then the economy had just crashed. The lies that sent our troops to war in Iraq had been exposed. There were no weapons of mass destruction. And the American people had just voted for hope and change, making Barack Obama, or should I say Barack Hussein Obama, our first black president in a landslide. Now, this report from the Department of Homeland Security, it warned that the economic and political conditions would now be ripe for recruiting right-wing extremists, including disgruntled military veterans, and that these groups would now become more violent. So instead of doing anything about combating this threat, the threat that was described in the report of 09, um, the opposite happened. <laughs> it was leaked, this report was leaked to right-wing media who attacked its author and attacked the Obama administration and forced them. Do you, do you guys, anybody remember this? Forced them to rescind the report. The report warning us of right-wing extremism and how this was going to grow. And the right-wing media, Fox, Limbaugh, etc., demanded an apology to all veterans and to turn 
the nation's focus back to killing Muslims because that was the real threat, the Muslims. Well, the people who worked on this report would soon all be out of a job. They were all out of their jobs. And the unit at Homeland Security that focused on this kind of homegrown right-wing terror threat was disbanded. Disbanded. There would no longer be this this unit within Homeland Security to protect us from potential right-wing extremists. What is wrong with us, my friends? How many times have we heard this story, right? How how did we end up even with 9-11? Because of this kind of what my grandparents would call tomfoolery. The author of this report back in 09 was a former Army veteran named Daryl Johnson. And he was the senior analyst for domestic terrorism at the Department of Homeland Security. And he was to have been banished, gone, vaporized, forgotten. But he didn't go away. He didn't give up. He started his own private consulting company for those state and local law enforcement agencies who actually did believe this was a potential threat, amongst others. And so he formed his own small consulting company to consult with those law enforcement agencies that gave a damn about this. And he survived. And he is with us here today on Rumble. Please, everyone, welcome uh, Daryl Johnson. Daryl. Welcome. Thank you for having me on your show, Michael. Well, thank you for taking the time. I know this is a very busy week and um, there's a lot going on and there's a lot, there is a lot of activity and not enough of it. I I was just um, um, talking to somebody and NBC uh, has Gabe Guter as uh, their correspondent there in Lansing in the capital of Michigan. And the attorney general just a few hours ago uh, declared that the state capital, the state capital in Michigan, the one that was overrun by the armed militias earlier this year, um, none of them arrested, by the way, uh, that she said today that the state capital of my state is not safe. The capital building is not safe. And then they were interviewing this woman who's a state senator from Detroit who um, has taken in, as has as have other state reps and senators, they've taken in bulletproof vests. She said she had it hidden under her, her desk on the floor of the Michigan Senate. But because she's even afraid tomorrow to walk to work from her, from the state Senate office building across the street, that she's taken the bulletproof vest over to the office so that she can put it on there to walk across the street to do the people's business in the Michigan state Senate. And they said that the Michigan state police were aware of the threat. And then it showed, and they said they were increasing their presence. And then they pulled back the camera. And this is what I, I love so much about some journalists, especially some photojournalists who know that we will understand the irony. The camera was pulled back 
to reveal the Michigan State Police on the grounds of the Michigan Capitol building, and there were five of them on bicycles. Mm. Daryl, um, let me just ask you right off the bat here, uh, because don't no, seriously, people are scared shitless right now all across this country. They've called for armed marches this weekend and through Inauguration Day in all 50 state capitals and, and of course, in Washington, D.C., what is our threat level right now? And 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 I and and please give us an honest answer. I know you don't want to scare people, but this people who listen to this podcast know that I am I do not like hope. I I I, I mean I like to be hopeful and I like to be optimistic, but I also believe that we must be told the truth because fake hope or or kind of hope that's created to calm us down. Um, is not real hope. That's something else. And it's not what we need. We need the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I'm I, I dying all day to want to hear what you have to say about this, uh, because while I know it's not the end of the world, and I know that uh, uh, these militias do not number in the hundreds of thousands, um, I'm not, I, I because I live in Michigan, I know what the I know what the real threat is. I I grew up with it. I, as I've said on this episode or on this podcast a number of times, I graduated the same year as Terry Nichols, the person who worked with Timothy McVeigh to blow up the Oklahoma City Federal Building, and we grew, we graduated the same year in high schools next to each other. I went to Davison High School. He went to Lapeer High School. Those from Michigan know the geography of that, and just a few miles away, and um. So I've been familiar with these guys, you know, for a long time. And, and because not that I was one of those guys, cause I was raised by different parents, but I was, I did win the NRA marksman award uh, when I was an Eagle scout. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I, I know how to operate a gun and I know how to be very specific and exact with it. Nonetheless, I consider myself a pacifist too. So, D- D- Daryl, um, where are we at today, right now? Well, before I ask, answer that question, I uh, just want to let you know that I'm also an Eagle Scout and got my sharpshooter uh, qualifications oh my with my wow. rifle and shotgun wow. badge. So you you um, and I, we could have a shoot-off uh, at some point. Not against, not against each other. Just, I mean, yeah, it's a com- friendly competition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, To answer your question, Michael, um, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I want to make sure that people are prepared for the time period that we're about to enter. Uh, Some people might think that this uh, insurrection that we saw at the Capitol last week was kind of the last dying breath of a movement uh, that once Trump is removed from office, uh, when he leaves office, um, that this threat is just going to miraculously go away. It's not. That event last week is the beginning of a new, more dangerous, violent phase of right-wing extremism. And we're going to encounter this threat not only for the coming days leading up to the inauguration, uh, but for many months, uh, even a few years uh, to deal with this. So it's very important that our government, as well as our citizenry, um, our faith-based organizations, civil rights organizations, everybody come together to recognize this threat, to develop strategies to combat it. Because believe it or not, 
uh, white supremacy was pretty much the historical uh, most violent domestic extremist movement in America just by the sheer body count. Uh, but my concerns ever since I was a trained intelligence analyst dealing with these issues has always been the militia movement. And the reason why I say that is because they are the most capable of any domestic extremist movements we have in this country as far as firearms, ammunition, explosives, and training. And it only takes them to get organized around a common cause uh, that they're very passionate about, whether it's Second Amendment rights or the erosion of our Constitution, or now this new, you know, fake allegations of voter fraud, uh, these are the types of things that galvanize these people and can redirect that passion that they have and that cap that violent capability uh, onto our own government. And so we are entering a period of high risk for terrorism, violent criminality by these types of extremists. I don't disagree with any of that. That's exactly how I feel about it. And, um, and I've taken this very seriously for some time. Um, back when I, I had a TV series on NBC called TV Nation, uh, and then on Bravo, it was called The Awful Truth uh, back in the 90s. And I went and spent a day or two with the Michigan militia. Um, uh, and it was um, obviously pretty frightening. And then um, in a later film, um, um, in Bowling for Columbine, I went back and spent more time with a different Michigan militia. And um, they, um, you know, I asked each of them with the camera and the microphone, so, so what do you do for a living? And one guy says, um, I'm an accountant. Next guy says, I'm a real estate appraiser. Next guy says, I do drywall. I mean, it was quite a variety and, and there were women, women there too. They weren't all guys. Um, just like last Wednesday, there were um, many women um, present. So that being your assessment, um, I think the first, the, the, the short-term question the, 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 that we maybe need answered right now is what do we do right now? What do we do about tomorrow? What do we do about tonight? What, what do we, we who are listening to this, we, the American people, uh, and most Americans, 77% of the American public does not own a gun. That's that's the actual statistic. They, they, we think of ourselves or people think that we're a nation of gun nuts, but that's not true. The majority of Americans do not own guns. And, and the next 20% after the 77% that don't own guns, the next 20% are just decent People, mostly hunters, um, target practice, uh, and some have legitimate reason for their protection. Um, it's the last 3%. The Washington Post did a great story on this. That last 3% of Americans that own half the guns in the United States. Now, you may say 3% isn't much, but 3% of 300 million is quick. Somebody help me with the math there. Um, <laughs> well, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 9 million people. All right. Nine million people own half the guns, which are, they think are approximately, um, uh, we have over 300 million guns in private possession in this country. 
So if they own half the guns, they own over 150 million guns, this 3% of the population. So, uh, so for those of us and the people listening to this who maybe do not own guns and do not see that as a way to protect themselves, to protect the country over the next week or two, let alone, as you implied, that post-Trump, we've got maybe a bigger problem on our hands. What, what do you, right? What is your recommendation? Start with just the, the personal recommendation so that people will not, um, feel that their lives are in danger, even though they may be on some level. Well, the first thing is we shouldn't panic. Um, we shouldn't panic doesn't work. Yep. And we shouldn't, uh, ignore it anymore. We shouldn't just cower in our homes and be afraid. Uh, this is going to take a lot of effort on all levels of community and government. Um, it's got to be a top-down approach and also a bottom-up approach. Um, obviously, for the government, um, I outlined some of these recommendations back in my 2012 testimony to Congress after the Sikh Temple shooting in Wisconsin. Uh, but it starts with recognizing the threat, calling it out for what it is, terrorism, domestic terrorism. Don't try to minimize it. Don't try to divert attention away from it. And once we understand and recognize it, then we can be able to collect data on it. We'll be able to devote more money and resources to it and strategies on how to combat it. Uh, But on the federal level, we need training. Um, I'm in favor of a domestic terrorism statute that delineates roles and responsibilities among federal agencies. This is not just the FBI's job. Homeland Security has a role. Other federal agencies have a role. So we need the training. We need the domestic terrorism statute. We need to, you know, devote more money and resources to long-term undercover operations to identify people that are radicalizing and mobilizing towards violence. The social media companies, you know, they have a role to play by policing their content and by informing the police when they find somebody that's uh, becoming more radical and mobilizing towards violence. Uh, But our communities, uh, you know, I think we need to have clubs and programs in our schools, just like we do for anti-drug and anti-gang programs. We need anti-hate programs uh, because it starts in the home and in family and among our youth who get indoctrinated with this stuff, uh, you know, when they uh, grow older. Um, And the last thing I'm going to recommend, this may sound counterintuitive, but Rather than ostracize and condemn and you know, debate these people uh, that belong to these extremist movements, uh, we actually need to embrace them uh, on a person-to-person level. If it's a family member, a neighbor, co-worker, um, you need to show love and compassion towards these people. I've never met an extremist or heard about an extremist that left their radical ideology because somebody proved them wrong or debated it. Uh, It needs to be done in a loving way, maybe a humorous way, but reacclimate them into our communities and make them have a sense of belonging, I think will go a long way. And the last thing I'll say is not a single extremist that I've ever heard about left the movement. Like I said, because of debating, it's always been through an act of love or compassion shown towards these people. 
So that's my advice. Uh, there's a lot more things we need to be doing, but those are the highlights of it. Let me say something about that last point you made, because I know there are people listening to this right now going, are you kidding me? Love them, embrace them. But I want, I want to, if, if anybody has seen my movie, Where to Invade Next, where I go to nine countries and show what they've done to fix essentially many of the same problems we have. And I went to a different country for each of the problems. One was for healthcare and one was education and one was uh, nutrition. And, and, um, but I went to Norway because they had just had a terrorist incident, domestic terrorist, uh, a Norwegian who was part of these right wing groups that had been outlawed and, and their speech had been outlawed. Uh, so they couldn't have their own little paper. They couldn't ha- make up their handbills. They couldn't do anything. And so one of them, if people remember this incident, 10 years ago, and if you remember, uh, this right-winger um, put on a police officer's uniform. He wasn't a cop. Uh, and and uh, took a boat over to this island where all the liberal party, they're like their social democratic party, all their children were like at a summer camp for the sons and daughters of liberal lefty types in Norway. And he went to that island with a, a bunch of weapons and, oh my God, what did he kill? 60, 70 um, of these kids. And um, and just kept firing. They had nowhere to go. They couldn't get off the island. Some jumped in the water to try to swim back to the mainland. Uh, it was horrific. And um, they put him on trial. But they also studied him and his and his brethren. And the commission there, after he was convicted, um, and there's no, you cannot serve more than 20 years in a Norwegian prison. That's the law. Um, and so he was convicted for the full 20 years. They, the commission released their findings and they said that um, what you just said, Daryl, that the only way to bring their violent nature down, may not get rid of all of it, but bring it down, is to um, not shun them and not muzzle them. But, but, and they did this, they actually put like a soapbox in the main city park in Oslo, Norway, where anybody could stand up and make a speech and you could say anything. I mean, you could say the most hateful things if that's what you wanted to say. Because what they realized is, is that that when you try to prevent, if you clamp down too hard, they get so wound and so out of, so insane, they end up doing things like what this guy did on the on that camp island to those kids. And they and they decided. They've got to be able to speak their piece, even if we just are revolted by it. And we have to trust, as we have for, you know, in most civilized societies, we trust that the majority of people will shun them. I mean, will shun the message. And um, they won't, they won't get, they might get a new recruit or two, but they're not going to be made martyrs. And um, it's a very, it's in my film. I know it's hard to explain people listening to this going after last Wednesday, I don't want to hear anything about love or kindness or any of this stuff, but, but we do have to put a stop to this at some point and it won't come through debate 
or muzzling them. I'm not even sure it's, it's, I mean, this is a controversial and I don't, I don't know how I feel about this issue because I have my own feelings about Facebook and Twitter and all this, but um, uh, by stopping them there, they just go someplace else. And then you stop them there and they go, and and the more they go to, the deeper they go into their own cave and hiding, we don't know what's going on then. And we don't know how sick their minds are becoming. What do you think about this, Daryl, what I'm saying? I mean, I, I, I agree with what you just said, but I also know a lot of people listening to this uh, and, and um, you know, especially anyone who's black or brown listening to this doesn't want to hear about anything other than what are we going to do to protect ourselves from these crazy individuals? Yeah, obviously, you know, the victims of right-wing extremism, you know, don't have to show that love and compassion if they don't feel like it. Same with strangers. Okay. This is the responsibility of family members, friends, coworkers, people that interact with these uh, extremists on a daily basis. Those are the ones that are going to be influential and trying to pull them back in and reacclimate them into society. Uh, but you're exactly right. When we censor their speech online, it's like playing whack-a-mole. Uh, They're going to pop up and gravitate somewhere else. And then we lose that ability, like you said, to uh, hear them out and see what they're doing and seeing what they're chatting about and what's radicalizing them and what's their grievances. Um, And so, you know, the answer to me is not censorship. Uh, That's not really an American value. Uh, It's, you know, allowing these people to congregate. Uh, You know, we can... If there's conspiracy theories and disinformation being spread, maybe there's a way we can uh, somehow put a label uh, on websites or content saying that this is, you know, unproven or not true or this is a conspiracy theory or what have you, uh, not credible. Uh, And also give recognition to those institutions and organizations that are credible sources, give them kind of a better seal of approval by the Better Business Bureau or something. Um, I'm just kind of thinking out of the box here. Yeah, no, but like when when like Twitter started saying uh, when Trump would t- tweet something that wasn't true, they would start out by just saying, "Well, there's a dispute on this," and then finally they just got more and more blunt. And I just thought, just put a damn link to an article or something that will people will read it and they'll see the truth. And not all of them will get it or whatever, but but. I mean, I want to devote a whole show to this issue because it is a, it's a civil liberties issue, this issue of free speech. And I'll tell you, we're going to be able to arrest a number of these ringleaders and the people that, that made this violence happen because we're going to be able to see what they were writing and saying on Facebook, on Twitter, et cetera. By, mm-hmm. by, by kicking them off and shutting them down, it's like, where'd they go? And what are they plotting? And what are they talking about? Because now we don't know. Yep. And I don't, I don't know. They're, they're so full of their own ego. They are proud to post on Facebook and proud to post on Twitter. And, and if we lose the means to know what they're doing, then we have to create the secret police. And then we have to create the secret internet. And like you said, mm-hmm. like we had a domestic terrorist unit. Again, if you're black or brown, what you're hearing there is, yeah, because if the wrong administration is in power, they're going to use that domestic terror unit to go after black people and brown people and people that are just demonstrating to try and stop police violence or whatever. They're not violent people themselves, but you saw even Bill Barr say that, that, I mean, he even suggested that we need to, we need to draw up some sort of articles 
uh, on this uh, on this uh, insurgency this past <laughs> summer of people who were just asking not to be shot when they're when they're they're pulling out their cell phone. Yeah, that's a whole nother discussion, Michael, to talk about the biases within policing, the social injustice, the racism. Uh, you know, I've been out there advocating and educating people about how Antifa is not a terrorist organization. And even if they it's have not even an organization, <laughs> right. And if they had some violent elements is there's no comparison between the amount of violence we see from the far right and the far left, at least in the past several decades. Right. Do you, but what about, I mean, there, there were, there's photographs now of on duty police officers from other cities flying to DC last week to participate in the riot. There, I mean, these are actual on-duty police officers. There were, there were, they showed two from Seattle, two from NYPD. There were some New York firefighters there. Uh, there was a police chief from somewhere in the country. There was a sheriff from some other state. They were there participating in the mm-hmm. onslaught, in the violence. Yeah. And, and it's like, well, wasn't there a report recently? The level of of white supremacy or racism that exists within our police departments. It's, it's frightening on some level. It is. And there's even uh, investigations ongoing with some of the Capitol police officers uh, that were taking selfies with some of these extremists and uh, possibly letting them in through the door. And showing them uh, the way to Schumer's office and showing them this. I'm telling you, I've filmed so many times in that Capitol building. I still, if you ask me how to get to Nancy Pelosi's office, I couldn't tell you how to get there. If yep. you, that, that, that I didn't know that she had a little cubby hole behind her speakers, uh, her dais there, that they were, that's the door they were breaking and trying to get through. They knew that they knew that's the secret Pelosi door behind mm-hmm. the podium. And it's like, how did they know that? Well, they knew that because inside people, whether it was the police, but it also could have been Republican staffers or mm-hmm. even some Republican members of Congress themselves giving them the information and the map so they could get to where they wanted to go to. This, this, When this comes out, if what I'm saying is true, if the investigation finds this, this is going to be so revolting. And so there's going to have to be a, a demand. I mean, I've already put up on my website the 147 names of the Republicans who voted to throw out the votes of the American people. That even after hours after the violence, they they stood there and said, yes, yes, reject the votes of the American people. They committed an act against democracy on mm-hmm. that night. It it was so I, I so upsetting to me, I think, and to millions of others of people. And it's like, how are we going to to deal with this? And 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 in the and in the in the near run between now and and inauguration day, I just don't. When they say they're sending fifteen thousand National Guard to D.C., my first thought: not enough. <laughs> you know, fifteen thousand versus a hundred thousand who could show up? Not enough. Um, the the Michigan State Police on bikes? Not enough. Mm-hmm. Somebody needs to take this seriously because I take it seriously, and and I know. That they are in, they are emboldened and empowered by what happened last week. They boy, they know they got away with something. They got the whole nation on edge, and they're loving it. And they can't wait for round two. Yeah, and they perceive themselves as do-gooders, uh, patriots. You know, they believe that God is on their side and that they're saving the country rather than tearing it down. Um, 
you know, going back to your point about you know, police officers being sympathetic or actual members of these extremist uh, groups, um, you know, what I've been advocating is we need to take administrative action against these types of people uh, because they've clearly joined organizations that subscribe to conspiracy theories that believe, you know, in disinformation. So it really calls into question their ability to be objective, uh, their ability to, you know, make decisions properly. And, uh, you know, some of these officers have clearances. Um, they have access to sensitive information. So, you know, one way to tackle this, I, I kind of package it as not a criminal threat, but an actual insider threat, counterintelligence, operational security concern. Um, you know, these people aren't worthy to have clearances. Uh, we should restrict their access to sensitive information. Uh, they should not be out on our streets policing when they embrace these types of extremists, uh, radical beliefs. Uh, they, you know, some of them should be fired. Some of them should be reassigned to desk jobs, um, demoted. Uh, so, you know, those are the types of things I think need to be done that could be proactive and actually have an impact. My my lack of optimism on this is like, I'll just give you one example. I'm sure you probably saw it on the news a, a month or so ago. Uh, state of California, COVID rise was shooting through the roof. And so the governor uh, said that uh, if you're going to be out in public and around people, you have to wear a mask. And they had on the sheriff of, I can't remember if it was uh, Riverside County or San Bernardino, the one of the, the far east counties in, in um, that border Nevada and uh, Arizona in California. And the sheriff right on TV just said, hell no, I'm not obeying that order. It's your right to wear a mask or not wear a mask. And I'm thinking, okay, on that one level, I get that. But on this level, that you not wearing a mask is killing people. Mm-hmm. And if you're killing people, if you are posing a threat to me or my family, um, well, the extreme answer to that is if you are if you are trying to kill me, I have a right to kill you. Now, we don't want to go there because that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the country we want to live in. But it's like, it, it, it's, it's, don't I have a right to protect my family and myself from somebody who, who could be carrying the COVID virus and, and because of just talking to me, just breathing, um, I end up with COVID and I end up dead. Mm-hmm. Um, is that person a killer? Is that person, uh, was that an act of manslaughter? I mean, exactly what was it? Because I'll tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't just somebody exercising their rights, uh, their First Amendment rights to not wear a mask. Yes, yeah, definitely negligence. And, you know, being a publicly elected official, let's lead by example. Um, you know, masks have shown and proven to be a deterrent. And whether you personally believe that or not, do the right thing. You represent the people. You serve the people. The CDC and other scientific organizations have recommended this countermeasure. So do the responsible thing and wear the mask. When you wrote this report on the rise of right-wing extremism back in 2009, um, you didn't have a crystal ball. You couldn't uh, foresee where we're at now or the convergence of some just a whole bunch of awful things from the pandemic uh, combining, you know, having it happen during the Trump era and then having it happen during a new rise of, of right-wing extremism. But, um, you know, today in 2021, who who are, 
who are these people? I mean, when we talk about them, because I, I saw people interviewed that got on planes and went to participate in this uh, attempted coup. There was, there was like a, it was a school teacher or principal from Ohio. There was like the normal people, not, not mm-hmm. wackadoodles, not all wackadoodles, I should say, but they were just like <laughs> normal American people that you would never, never think that this is what they were up to if you were sitting next to them on the plane going right. there. What, what, what does this look like today and how does it differ from when you did that report um, in 2009? Yeah. So back in 2009, uh, we were primarily concerned about white supremacists and militia organizations and a movement called sovereign citizens. Uh, these are people that renounce their citizenship, don't obey the laws or regulations of government and there have been some violent confrontations with police, with these people that have fervent religious uh, beliefs that back up this conspiracy theory of being sovereign, free man. Uh, but there's been new movements created since 2009. Um, we've got organizations like uh, the Oath Keepers. Uh, these are uh, basically an anti-government group that believes in conspiracy theories like FEMA camps and uh, you know chemtrails, stuff like that. Uh, but they actively recruit military and police and EMS and firefighters. Uh, so they're really out there trying to bring in both former, current, retired uh, military members and police. Uh, we also have a um, little bit more of a hardcore militia movement uh, called the Three Percenters, which is relatively new. It was formed in 2008. Uh, these people, I mean, it's a lifestyle to them. The whole family isn't indoctrinated into this way of life. It's not just the male figure or the, the couple. It's the whole family. Uh, so we have a new generation of kids and teenagers that have been indoctrinated by their parents and by other members of these movements. Um, and they're, you know, really is uh, have a lot of Islamophobia. Uh, they've been at the center of these standoffs that we had at the Bundy Ranch in 2014 and at the Malheur uh, wildlife refuge in Oregon in 2016. And uh, so they're kind of a hardcore element within the militia movement. And then finally, I'll mention the QAnon conspiracy theory, uh, which is relatively new. I think it came on the scene in 2017. And uh, this is basically uh, an entire belief system that's poisoning the minds of a lot of conservatives and Republicans, uh, you know, basically through this anonymous person uh, who has a Q-level clearance in the government and supposedly leaking information about this evil cabal of Democrats that are child molesters and pedophiles. And it really gets these people uh, agitated, angry, and paranoid. Uh, So these are the more dangerous elements uh, that were represented uh, at the Capitol grounds, as well as some of these other protests that we've had, these anti-lockdown protests. You know, again, I don't want to get people more depressed than they already are, but Am I wrong to think that, as you said at the beginning of this, that we are entering a new phase um, of this uh, this rise of, of right right wing extremism? Are are we? Does this mean that the four coming four years here of the Biden era that we are going to and he is going to have to and his agenda is going to have to be distracted by and dealing with um, this kind of violence, this kind of attack? Um, uh, it's it. I mean, you can you could write a script about what could possibly happen here that we become um, so um, um, 
affected by various incidents and events of violence that um that he'll be which is this will be music to their ears to hear this he'll be unable to govern or govern properly that in the way that obama was was um um blocked and um you know all the things they did to stop obama from enacting his agenda but those weren't acts of violence that was that was just the the um, evil geniuses of the Republican Party that knew how to shut down any kind of real vote to get anything done. I'm talking about Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris being shut down because of the threat that a minority, small minority of people uh, will pose and the violence that they will um, enact to the point where we will be we will be facing one 9-11, one January 6th, 11th incident after another. And and the things that we need to get done, getting rid of COVID, uh, getting people back to work, making sure everybody's got enough money, nobody's evicted from their home, all these things that are facing us right now, healthcare for all, the things that we need, um, we're not even we're not gonna even have a discussion about this because we're gonna be so frazzled. And, and so frightened by um, event after event after event perpetrated by these militant, violent, extremist, terrorist-type uh, individuals. Well, I think that goes back to my point uh, that this needs to be addressed at all levels of you know, government as well as communities. Um, it's certainly going to be a distraction. It's certainly not going to go away in the next four years. It needs to be a priority for our government officials. Uh, but private sector, citizens, churches, uh, we, they all need to play a role in combating this threat. And one of the reasons why I'm concerned and that we're entering a period of higher risk is I've studied this phenomena of domestic terrorism for four decades of my life. It goes all the way back to when I was 15 years old. Um, I kind of had a, a gravitation towards this type of uh, topic. Um, but typically, you know, these far right groups uh, go away during Republican administrations. But this Trump administration has poured fuel on an already burning fire until now it's a raging inferno. And this is the first time uh, in the four decades that I've studied this, where these groups grew and continued to conduct attacks under a Republican administration. Because typically during Democratic administrations, these far-right groups are fearful of gun restrictions. They're fearful of minority rights being expanded. They're fearful of immigration rights and um, those types of topics uh, that typically are, you know, people-related rights uh, that the Democrats try to further and expand. And so that's what's creating this next wave, this new uh, phase, uh, the more dangerous phase of this right-wing extremist problem. Okay, so now the Democrats are back in power. They, have, they hold uh, the Senate, the House, and the White House now, not the Supreme Court. Um. So what do we do? I go back to this question. What do, what do we do? Let me let me just say this. Let's say I, I, I talked to Joe Biden after uh, this podcast here tonight, and uh, I have a talk with him. He's already picked his homeland security uh, person. 
But mm-hmm. I said, you know, uh, Daryl Johnson, man, you know, got the raw deal there when he tried to warn us back in 09. And he'll go, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that. Uh, uh, Daryl Johnson for Deputy Homeland Security uh, Director. <laughs> or, 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 or second deputy, maybe. Whatever it is. But if I were to hand you, but if I were to hand you the magic wand right now, where you were at near or at the top of Homeland Security, what are the things that you would do that would instantly start to protect us, but also preserve our our uh, civil liberties? Uh, we don't want to live in a police state. We don't want to be spied on, and we don't want the police sicked on uh, black and brown members of our community what would what would you have i you've just i've just given you the power what would you what would you do with this how would you how would you you know set things up so that we're not going to have to deal with what we had to deal with last wednesday we don't want this to be every wednesday we don't want this to be every month this this we, we are we we're already crazy right now from from covid-19 um and being locked into our homes um, help us out here, Daryl. Well, number one, I do not have a quest for power. And if that situation were to arise, I would politely and respectfully decline it because it's took such a toll on my personal life and my emotions. Uh, it's a very dark subject. I like to sit on the sidelines, uh, voice my opinion, give I'm, some good ideas. I'm sorry uh, to hear that it did that to you. That's yeah. really, really wrong. But to answer your question, Michael, if hypothetically, if I was in charge, uh, I would immediately call together uh, the best experts and minds uh, regarding this subject, get their ideas, discuss them, uh, come up with a plan um, and devote money and resources to it. Whatever ideas this committee come up with. Um, I've already given you some other ideas, uh, areas of emphasis that we need, but. I'm sure there's a lot of other good ideas out there that I haven't even thought of. Well, we need you right now. Your country needs you. I'm sorry to put this on you. I'm sorry what happened to you because what you did was you gave us a huge, huge warning. You know, some some uh, uh, 12, 12 years ago now. And um, and I think a lot of us just don't know know what to do because we don't really believe in responding to violence with more violence. So, um, you know, so what's, what's the peaceful way to do this? And I heard the things you said in terms of what we need to do on an individual basis. I completely agree with all that. And I've said on this podcast, we need to put more money into schools and libraries and Mm -hmm. because, because the children of MAGA nation, if, if they get to go to good schools, if they read books, if they read, you know, media that is telling the truth, they will grow up differently from their parents. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we will be, you know, if we would please restore civics classes, which have been eliminated now, I think in the last statistic I saw, nearly half of our schools no longer have civics. Mm-hmm. If we would restore those things that teach people about how this democracy can work. And if we can institute laws to make sure that the democracy does work and that the rich who buy the candidates don't call the shots, you know, this does cause a lot of, of this, this disgruntlement because, because the working class realizes that they're never going to get a break 
And so, and that's why it's easy to manipulate people that are down in their luck like that. But yep. it's, it, um, it seems like as a society, if we did all these things collectively, um, that, that maybe, maybe in the short run, we're going to have to suffer through some of this until we shut it down. But in the long run, in the next generation, just like we raised a whole generation of kids in these last 20, 30 years that didn't grow up to be haters or bigots or homophobes, they, 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 these kids, they love each other and they don't judge people by the color of their skin or who they're in love with. It's been wonderful to see that. That's the majority of young adults now um, that, that maybe when you were younger or I was younger, that wasn't the case. So it has gotten better. And we, I don't know what, I mean, what's your feeling about that? Well, I'd like to kind of leave on a positive note. I want to share with you what I've done as an individual uh, to try to contribute and, you know, yes, please combat this threat. So just within the past year, um, I accepted two positions uh, with organizations that have missions at uh, combating far-right extremism. The first of which is based out of Madison, Wisconsin. It's called We Are Many United Against Hate. And I assumed a, a voluntary honorary board member role. And we're in the midst of a program that we're trying to roll out nationwide uh, on forming these anti-hate clubs in high schools and middle schools mm. uh, to, to get kids to come together and discuss this issue and talk about the dangers of extremism and conspiracy theories and things like this. The second thing I've done is uh, I accepted a non-resident fellow position with a Washington think tank called the Center for Global Policy. And we're writing threat assessments uh, without the restrictions that I had as a federal employee uh, to help continue to warn and assess and give policy recommendations uh, for what we should be doing to, to stem this threat. So what I would encourage all your listeners to look at those two organizations, see the uh, work that I've been doing, and hopefully uh, it'll catch your interest and you can you know, join up and help uh, spread the love and compassion. Well, I will look both of those up right away. And I encourage people to do the same. I thank you for the work that you've done over the years that you continue to do and the, con the consulting that you do with local police and sheriff who, sheriff's departments who um, want to leave behind the old way um, and find a new way to do policing and law enforcement, criminal justice. Um, so thank you for that, uh, Daryl. And um, thank you for, for being on Rumble. Um, and uh, let's, uh, let's pray we get through the next week. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. And Michael, I really appreciate the opportunity to, you know, increase people's understandings and discuss this topic. And so kudos to you for reaching out and invite me on your show. Thank you very much, Daryl. We're all in this together. I have just a few more things I want to share with you before we close. Uh, but before we go any further, I want to thank our, our, our longtime underwriter uh, here. They're with us through most of our first year, ExpressVPN. Now, as you've heard me say, you know, all of us have very little choice when it comes to choosing our internet service provider. These huge tech companies, they operate like monopolies, like monopolies. Mm. And they, they use this power they have to take advantage of you, the so-called customers. And this includes logging your internet activity and then selling that data to other big tech companies or advertisers. So to prevent 
these internet service providers from seeing your internet activity, you, all of you, and me can now protect our devices with this wonderful thing called ExpressVPN. All you got to do is download the app. You tap one button on your device and boom, you're protected. I mean, literally, it's that easy. And ExpressVPN, our wonderful underwriter here, they do all this without slowing down your connection. That's why it's rated number one. You know, they have the VPN ratings every year. And once again, rated number one, ExpressVPN. This is all I want you to do. Stop handing over your personal data to these big tech companies who mine your activity and then sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN. It's worked for me. You go to expressvpn.com slash rumble. You got to do the slash rumble there so that they know that you support their support of rumble. So you go to expressvpn.com slash rumble express E X P R E S S V as in Victor P as in Paul and N as in Newfoundland expressvpn.com slash rumble. And if you do this and you sign up, you get three extra months free because you are a listener of Rumble with Michael Moore. So go there right now. You can learn more about it. It's boom. Hit the button. Boom. You're protected. ExpressVPN. Thank you. I want to close today by just going over the, we'll call it the weekly bullet points, what we've been talking about since last Wednesday's attack on the Capitol building. The seven things I, what I call the seven critical truths of this coup attempt. And, and, and we need to ingrain them in our heads and understand no matter how they try to BS us, we know the, we know these truths to be self-evident. And I'm just going to quickly go down them for you before, before we close here. And, and please share this with others, share this podcast. Um, if you want a written account of this, I've got, I've got them listed on my, on, on my own Facebook and, and I've, um, I think, I think you can get it on, on um, my Twitter and you can get most of them on Instagram. They don't allow you more than 2000 words, I think. But uh, um, anyways, here we go. My seven critical truths about the last week. Number one, this attack on the Capitol was an inside job in which some Republican, get this, some Republican members of Congress and their staffs assisted the mob in getting into and through the Capitol building. Trust me on this one point. This happened, and we're going to find out the truth of it and who did it. And by the way, I also have listed on on my Facebook and, and uh, uh, Twitter and Instagram the 147 Republicans who voted in an act of sedition, the Sedition Caucus of the Republican Party. Two thirds of all Republicans in in the House and and eight or nine senators uh, voted to throw out the votes of the American people hours, hours after the building was attacked and their lives were in danger. They went back in there and voted on the terrorist demands and gave the terror. They lost, but those who voted for it, they were voting to give in to what the terrorists wanted. Wow. Number two, the number two thing to remember, various elements of law enforcement also assisted in this attack, as did rogue cops and current and ex-military from around the country. And as I've told you, we have pictures of current members of the NYPD and the Seattle Police Force. They were all there. 
They were there. They were part of it. There are white supremacists and racists in every single police department in this country, and we must remove them from these departments. Who are we going to defund? Them. We're going to defund the racists and the white supremacists. Is that easier for now for everybody to take? Do you understand what we're talking about? Okay, good. Number three, Trump was the ringleader and the inciter of this coup attempt and refused to send in the National Guard when when various calls were coming to him from the Capitol Police and from the mayor's office, and he refused for hours. And as a result, more people were injured and a, and a police officer was killed. Number four, this attack was a dry run for more violent attacks that the terrorists are planning to launch, both before and after the inauguration. The number five truth is that even members of Congress knew shit was going to happen last Wednesday. And the police knew it. Homeland Security knew it. FBI knew it. And some of them, in the way that they part, I'll give you an example of how the Capitol Police, not the police themselves, but the their leaders, there's 2,300 members of the Capitol Police Force. 1,900 were told to stay home on this day, a day they knew that was going to be violent. Only 400 or so reported to work of the 2,300. It, the whole thing was designed and set up for them to be overrun and their lives were put in danger and many of them were injured and one of them died and one a day or two later committed suicide. Number six, of the very few terrorists that day who've now been arrested, and I mean very few, not one of them has been charged with terrorism. Trespassing is the most common charge. They all have to be arrested and tried. And finally, number seven, white supremacists were everywhere in the mob last Wednesday. Some wore T-shirts proclaiming six, I saw two, one said six million, six million were enough, meaning the six million dead Jews of the Holocaust. Then one other guy said, no, six million wasn't enough. Our, as I've said, our military and our police departments have been infiltrated by these white supremacists and we have to deal with this. Those are it. Please keep those in mind. And um, we're going to see a lot of Republicans uh, try to change from their wolf from their wolf wear to their sheep's clothing in the next few days and watch them. They're all going to they'll get behind the impeachment now, thinking that, that, that this is the way that they'll be able to say, how, oh, yeah, no, they were against this and all their calls for unity. We need unity, Mike. We need to all get along now. Let's look forward, not backward to last Wednesday, forward. Well, the kind of unity you want? No fucking way. Here's the kind of unity I want. I believe in the unity that says the law is to be enforced and you are to go to prison. That's my kind of unity. My unity says that when the vast number by, by, you know, 8 million or so decide that they want Joe Biden as president and they believe in the things that Joe Biden believes in, whether it's issues with the economy, peace, the environment, 
That's because the majority of Americans believe in those things. That's the unity. We, the majority, are all together on this, on whatever these issues are and how we want to better this country and the world that we live in. That's our unity. And, and, and here's the bonus for you who are not part of us. When we get health care for all Americans, we're going to get it for you too. When we get free college for our kids, we're going to get free college for your kids too. When we clean up our environment and protect this earth, we're going to do that so that you get to live too. That's the bonus with our side. You see, when we come in, we just don't try to pass tax bills for the 1%. What can we get out of it for ourselves? Me, 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 me. No, no, we come in and we pass bills that benefit everybody, including you, especially you. That's the unity that we're going to bring you. And we are unified and hear this very clearly. We are unified against violence. We are unified against anybody who would steal our vote from us, who would suppress the right to vote. We are going to fix this for our black and brown fellow Americans who've had to suffer. That's our unity. And you are not going to get in the way. And if you don't think I mean that, and if you don't think Joe Biden and Kamala Harris means that, or Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, all of them, you're in for a very rude awakening. I think it's best that that you wise up. Fight for the things you believe in, but do it nonviolently. You're going to hate if you continue behaving the way you do. You're really going to miss your family when you're behind bars for 10 to 20 years. That's going to suck. Don't do that. They need you. Do the right thing. Be a good American. There is no other choice at this point. My friends, this was a long episode. My apologies for that. There's so much going on right now. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this with others. Uh, please write to me. I read all my emails. Mike at michaelmore.com. Easy. And I have on the podcast page here, I have a link where you can leave me a voicemail. And I listen to all my voicemails. So please do that. Um, I'll be back here in a few days if I need to be back sooner because things have happened. Then we'll have an emergency podcast version of Rumble. Um, but uh, I'm here. I've got your back the best I can. Um, we'll get through this. Thanks to my executive producer, Basil Hamden, our uh, editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, and to everybody else who's helped uh, with this podcast. Don't give up. Come on. This is our moment. This is when we can shine and we can show ourselves and our children and our grandchildren and the rest of the world the things we really believe and stand for. This is our moment. Thank you, everyone. I'm Michael Moore, and this is... Well, it's impeachment day, and it's rumble. Mm-hmm.